Good morning, everybody. You guys happy to be here? You guys ready to hear a, a great word from God? I don't mean great word because of anything that I'm about to do, but I'm, I'm continually amazed and excited at the things that God does when, when I'm writing a message. Usually, I'll start writing my message earlier in the week. I, I try to. Um, try to get it done, and then I usually wait a day or two to kind of let the Lord speak into it and, you know, whatever he might want to change. And every now and then, I feel like I ought to be writing my messages on an Etch-A-Sketch because sometimes, like morning of, he'll just take that and shake it up and go, okay, here, blank sheet, start over. This is one of those, and I'm kind of excited about where he has taken this. So um, welcome to those of you who have not been with us for a while, maybe newcomers or you've missed a few. Uh, we are in the series on Romans. We started it off last week, uh, kicked it off with just kind of an introduction. Why was the book of Romans even written? Who wrote it? We kind of talked about some of those things. And I'll do a little recap as we go along here just to kind of get everybody up to speed. Um, but it is, it's an amazing book of some very, very deep theology. We went through the series in Acts, and Acts is, is Luke's account of those things that happened as the church was growing, as the, the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples to give them what they needed to go and accomplish the mission that Jesus Christ himself gave them. Now, does anybody remember the mission that Jesus gave his disciples? Go and make disciples. Right, that was the number one mission that he said, and it's called the Great Commission, that he said, go and make disciples. This was the primary thing that Jesus left them with before he ascended. He said, go and make disciples. And then, of course, the Holy Spirit comes upon them to help enable them to do these things. But this is where we are. So, in essence, that mission hasn't changed. That mission that Jesus gave them all the way back then is still the primary mission of the church today. Should be, go and make disciples. So that's his commission. That was his, his marching orders, if you will. But do you remember what Jesus replied when he was asked at one point, what is the greatest commandment? Remember, they were actually testing him by saying, what's the greatest commandment? But he replies back to them with what, he, with what Jesus said the greatest commandment was. Anybody remember what that was? Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. So we're left with two things. We're left with go and make disciples. That's your mission. But then overarching all that, he said, the greatest commandment is this, love the Lord your God and love one another. So go do this, but in love. If I could boil it down, Go make disciples in love. So I want to ask you guys, before we even get into the book of Romans, what is the greatest, the single greatest hindrance for the church as a whole, not just you or us here, but the church as a whole, to carrying out what Jesus tasked us with doing? With our mission here on earth, what's our biggest hindrance to that? Lack of love. That's a good one. Anybody else? Lack of, caring. lack of caring. Right. And how does lack of love, how does lack of caring manifest a lot of times? Conflict. Conflict. 
conflict often comes from self-righteousness. From self-righteousness. The entire book of Romans, you could really boil it down to this. Righteousness is a gift from God. Righteousness is a gift from God. That's what Jesus gave himself up for. To wash us clean, to make us righteous in the eyes of God, to reconcile us to Father God. So that righteousness is a gift from God. The problem is that oftentimes we feel, we may not verbalize this, but we act as though that gift of righteousness in Jesus is not enough. And we actually need to manufacture our own righteousness. Because the righteousness of God, that's a wonderful thing, but God could not possibly foresee my neighbor and the things that he does on a daily basis. Or my in-law who's living in sin. Or my friend at work who drinks too much. Or whatever it is, he couldn't possibly have foreseen all of that. So I need to take my own, I need to manufacture my own righteousness guidelines so that now I can walk around and I can point at people and I can say, okay, that's all good, but you're doing things wrong. We may not even openly point, but it's in our heart. Remember, Jesus teaches over and over again that it's not even so much what you do, but it's what's in your heart that matters. And we, when we have a heart full of self-righteousness and judgment, that does more damage to the mission that Jesus Christ gave us than just about anything that we could do. Anything that we could do. I would venture to say in many cases, the work of the enemy, the work of the devil in people's lives is not even as damaging as the work of Christians, well-meaning in most cases, who are full of self-righteousness and judgment. And sometimes they think they're doing it in love. I know I've done that before. I'm doing it in love, but it's not my place. Now, there are times and there are places where we're called to correct and rebuke a brother or sister in Christ. There are times, but that's not judgment. Judgment belongs to the Lord. And when we take that upon ourselves and our own self-righteousness, the damage can be almost irreparable. Now, I believe God's will can be done ultimately. He can overcome our failings and he can overcome our mistakes, certainly. But how many times has somebody's self-righteousness and their attitudes, especially within the church, especially of a professing Christian who walks around with a self-righteous attitude, how many times has that derailed or delayed someone's walk with Christ? How many times has that made the offer of the gift of salvation and eternal life in Jesus Christ, how many, how many times has that self-righteous attitude made that gift seem like, why would I want that? Why do I want to be a part of your club if that's what you're doing? So let's think about that as we go through this message. This is where Paul is. So as Paul goes into the book of Romans, he's talking about righteousness being a gift from God. But he's got to start out by addressing this issue of self-righteousness. And this is what we find as we open up in chapter 1 of Romans. So let's get right to it, okay? Let's start out. Let's introduce what we're going to do here by going to Romans 1, 
1, the very beginning. <clears throat> now this is Romans, quick recap. Romans is called an epistle. Okay, and an epistle is nothing more than a letter. And it's a letter written by the Apostle Paul to, oftentimes it's the name of the book is the recipient. So Romans, it's actually the church in Rome. And he's writing this letter to the church in Rome. Now, if you weren't here last week, what I talked about is an epistle can be written for many reasons. It can be written to, to correct bad behavior. It can be written to encourage. It can be written to instruct and teach. Pretty much the same reason we would write any letter today is the same kind of reason that Paul writes this epistle. And he starts out pretty much like any of us would with greetings, okay? Oftentimes we think of greetings as like it's sort of our canned response, right? We're just like, I'll start every letter. I'm writing my Christmas cards this year. Everyone starts out with the first three letters. Hope you're having a good year. It's been crazy for us. And then you go into the meat of the letter, right? So we're tempted to think that as Paul is opening up this epistle, that the first part of it is just one of those kind of throwaways. Like we skim past it to get to the meat of what he's saying. But let's look at this. Let's read this. So this is Romans 1.1, and, and then we skip just a little bit and go down to 7. So Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called it as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. And then down to verse 7. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, Paul, he's introducing himself. Many of them in this new church, this growing church in Rome, Rome is the most important city in the world at this time. Probably a million or more people in this city, growing like crazy. It's the cultural hub. It's the, the, the governmental hub. It's the Roman Empire capital. It is, it's a big deal, but they don't really know who Paul is. So he's introducing himself. He's saying, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. He's introducing his apostolic authority, saying, okay, I, I am an authority on the things that I'm going to tell you, set apart for the gospel of God. But let's go back to the very, very beginning, the very first part of the first sentence, a bondservant of Christ Jesus. How many people know what a bondservant is? A slave in some contexts, actually in all contexts, but to varying degrees, a bondservant is a slave. But here's what's important to know about this. This word bondservant in Greek translates as the word doulos. And what it literally means in that culture and in that language is a slave. You have no rights. You are literally the property of your owner. Okay. Now, it differs slightly from an actual slave slave. A slave would be captured uh, you know, for, during a war or something like that, and you were made to be a slave. A bondservant typically is paying off a debt. So they're paying off a debt, and you become a slave as you're paying off that debt. The idea is at some point that debt's paid and you, and you go free, but in reality, that rarely ever happened. Because there would be, well, okay, you paid off your original debt, but then there's room and board and housing and all these things over the last however long, and you got to pay that off too. And so, in essence, you would be just, you're a slave. Now, that's in that Greek and Roman culture. That's what that means, doulos, but it's different 
in the Hebrew culture. In the Hebrew culture, and the reason this is important is because that church in Rome is made up of both people with a Hebrew, Jewish Hebrew background, and people with a Greek Gentile background. It's a mix. So that church is growing, but it's mixed with different people. I'm going to get into that more a little bit later. But Paul means this, bondservant, he means this in the Hebrew culture context. And that word actually translates a little bit differently. It's abed. And it means bondservant, but it goes all the way back to Exodus. When Mosaic Law is being written out, it actually addresses what a bondservant looks like. And here it is. This is ex- I'll read this to you. Exodus 21, verses 5 and 6. It's just issue, uh, addressing the issue of slaves. It says, but if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out as a free man. It's addressing, you've, you've released your slave. I will not go out as a free man. Then his master shall bring him to God. Then he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost. And his master shall pierce his ear with an awl. That's biblical precedent for ear piercing. <laughs> and he shall serve him permanently. Shall serve him permanently is that word abed translated in this case, or or bondservant. That's what that means. So the point that Paul is trying to get across here when he opens up like this is saying, I am a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, as are you. We serve voluntarily. Everything about service to Jesus Christ is is voluntary, which is different compared to the cultures that he's talking to, okay? Now, if he's addressing the Greek Gentile portion of the room, they would have understand more, uh, understood more the freedom and liberty in Christ because they didn't have centuries and eons of, of Mosaic law to overcome like the Jewish half of the crowd did. They embraced that, that, uh, that freedom and that liberty and that grace. They embraced that wholeheartedly and, and almost took it to an extreme in that direction. But they would have understood this. But Paul is saying service, service in the Lord is voluntary. He wants your heart, which is the same thing going all the way back to Exodus. That's saying if your master and his family and that household has your heart, serve him. Serve him with all your heart. That's what a bondservant is, and that's how Paul's introducing himself in that culture. Now, a short history lesson is in order. I've kind of alluded to this church being mixed this church was, um, it, w- it was very mixed. If you consider, just picture ourselves here as like a microcosm of what that growing church in Rome looked like. Of course, it was much bigger than this room. But it would have been divided into two or three different subgroups of people. All have come to know Christ, but they're growing in it. And they're coming from different cultural backgrounds. We have a group of people who are who are Greeks or Gentiles. In other words, Greeks is just kind of a generic term. I'll talk about that more in a little bit. But you'd be Gentiles. And then there's another part of the room that are Jews, but Jews from a Pharisaic background. In other words, they, they have that, they're part of the sect or group of Pharisees. Okay? And you don't have to be an actual Pharisee to fall in line with their teaching. And then there's yet another group who are also Jews, but they are Jews of the Sadducees sect. 
And the problem is, is that even though they're both Jews, the Pharisees and the Sadducees barely tolerated each other because they didn't believe the same things. And then you've got this group of Gentiles who are just happy to be here. And they're, they're having a much easier time, really, of grasping the gospel because it's all about, about freedom and inclusion. And they, that's something that they've never been a part of before. And so they're now getting to this. But the reason that Paul's got to write this letter is, is manyfold, and it's kind of complicated, but bear with me on this. Rome has had a succession of emperors, okay? Starting with, well, a long secession, but in terms of biblical history, we had Caligula, okay? And then we had Claudius. And now at the time this is being written, it's actually Emperor Nero, okay? All of which, if you remember anything about your history going all the way back to high school, were not really good guys, if you, okay? They all had their, all had their issues, especially Caligula, right? But what has happened in our history here that we see is that Claudius, the Emperor Claudius, had actually expelled, around 50 or so AD, had expelled all Jews from Rome. And this happened several times. Okay, so this wasn't the first time that it happened. Happened way back, well, it happened way, way back, but it, in recent history, it had happened in about 150 BC, and then again in about 19 or 20 AD, and now again for a third time here in about 50 or so. He expels all the Jews from Rome. He just says, get, get your stuff and go. And they would do this every now and then as the Jewish uh, people started to demand more rights and started to be just a little bit more irritating. So their response to that was just to say, leave. I banish you. So when Emperor Claudius did this, the Jews, whether they were still Jews by culture or they were Jews who were converting to Christ, they're still Jews in the eyes of the Roman government, right? And they still considered themselves Jews. They were banished. So they had to leave, which left this church in Rome only with the Gentile or the Greek converts, okay? So they did a good job. They, they grew this church. They, they installed church government. They started growing it. They started teaching. They started praising God. They started doing all the things that a good church would do. But they started doing it from their, their viewpoint, their cultural viewpoint, which was more towards the side of freedom and liberty and grace in Christ. Fast forward now to about 54 or so, and Claudius dies. Now, the way it worked in Roman culture is when that emperor died, so did most of his decrees and most of his pet projects and things like this also died with him. So with that died the expulsion of the Jews. So the Jews got to come back. And remember, this wasn't the first time this had happened to them. So they were, it's not like they just took all their stuff and said, okay, we're going we're gonna to move to an entirely different place. Rome was still their home. They knew at some point they were probably going to get to come back. So they come flooding back home. They come back to their church. Okay, and I don't know what it looked like, one big building or many buildings, but they come back together. And they say, we're back. And what they get is they find a different church than the one they left. 
They find one that has swung a little bit more towards that liberty side. Not crazy. Paul's not writing this letter to correct them and say, you guys are off the rails. I don't know why I just decided you guys are the Gentiles. <laughs> I've just, for purposes of illustration, I've just made that decision. So, he's not writing this to correct them, though. In fact, he's, he's encouraging them. He's saying, man, I want to come visit you guys. Um, but there's friction. There's friction that is starting within this church because the Jews returning, not only are they kind of infighting among each other a little bit, but now they come back and they find the church looks different than the one that they left. And now this is where we find us. It's important to know that that word culturally, if the Jews had not been back in Rome, and Paul was just writing this letter to the Gentile audience that was there at the time, he would not have used that same phrase, bondservant, because they would have heard it and meant slave. And to them, that would have meant, oh, he's a slave of Jesus. Maybe we're looking at this wrong. Maybe there's not this liberty. Maybe we're captives or slaves of Jesus. So he's very careful when he picks his words here, and he's addressing them in the Hebrew Jewish cultural tradition of a voluntary, a servant by heart, servant by choice. And this is where he's, he starts out the letter just like that, saying, I want you to make sure you get that solid. So it's much more than just platitudes when he opens this up. So we'll go into the rest of it. Remember, Paul is writing this letter from Corinth. Okay, he had in his mind several times on his missionary journeys said, I want to go to Rome. Rome was a big deal at the time. I want to go to Rome. Rome was a church that was growing that didn't have any direct apostolic oversight. It was just started by a group of people who were probably in Jerusalem at the time of Passover, saw what happened at Pentecost, and then went back home after the festival, back home to Rome, and then started this church. So they're doing good, but their teaching, their doctrinal teaching is, is minimal. So Paul says, I want to get there. I want to get there and help you guys, help you grow this, help make sure that you're on the right track. And this is where he is. In fact, in Romans 1.13, he says this, and this is, again, as he's opening up the letter, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. So now, in the opening of his letter, he's, he's introducing this concept that the Gentiles are also to be included. Now remember, at this time, they're, they're tolerating one another, but they weren't there at the Jerusalem council to hear that now Gentiles are actually officially welcomed in as equals. There's no difference. They're still kind of struggling with this, even though they're under the same roof. And Paul here, again, throws in even among the rest of the Gentiles to this letter so that there's no confusion. And he even goes on. This one we have under, on screen. Romans 1.14. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. That's kind of throwing a wide net, right? Now, the important thing about this, a couple things. Number one, he's saying, hey, I'm, I'm an ob obligation to everyone. Everyone is a part of this. But this phrase, Greeks and barbarians, Greeks, he doesn't necessarily mean you are Greek, okay? He's not saying you're a Greek person or a Greek heritage. Or, you may be, 
But Greek then was more of a, of a mindset. If you called yourself a Greek, you were one of the intellectual elite. You were a thinker, okay? So you probably spoke the Greek language. Now remember in Rome, the official language was what? It was Latin. But if you were a thinker, you identified as a Greek. You would, you would speak the Greek language. You would identify with Greek culture. You would, you would be a part of all the different philosophical discussions. You were, you were, you were the elite, okay? And the barbarians, pretty much everyone else, okay? But he's saying, hey, whether you're a thinker or you're a Jew or you're one of the everyone else, I'm under obligation to you. And so he's trying to be very inclusive. He's trying to get the point across in every word he says, saying, this is all of our thing. It's not just the Jews thing. This is a, a hurdle that he's got to overcome time and time again, this issue of including the Gentiles into this new thing. And so he's, he's trying to solidify that. But then... Now that he's got that out of the way, he cuts really to the depth of what this letter is about. Let's go to the next one. Romans 1, 16, 17. Now, for those of you who weren't here last week, I covered this last week. I'm going to kind of touch on it a little bit here. But he says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. At that very beginning, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Think about Paul's journey so far to get to this place where he is. He's been run out of town. He's been stoned. He's been mocked. He had to be, be hidden under a cloak and, and, and scurried out in the dark of night because of death threats. He's been chased out of every good town that he's come across, right? But rather than to be ashamed of it, he's proud of it. He sees that as a result of fruitful ministry. If I'm doing what God wants me to do, yeah, there's going to be pushback. Doesn't mean he ever sought it. He never went into a town purposely seeking to be mocked and seeking to be persecuted. And I don't think we should ever do that either. In fact, he did what he could by going to the Jews first to try and soothe them and make, open their hearts up to what he had to say. But he knew, ultimately, he would probably end up being mocked and ridiculed and chased out of town. But that didn't dissuade him from sharing what he knew on his heart that he had to do. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The very power of God. Now, the Jewish part of the room would have known. They're very familiar with the power of God, going all the way back to, to Egypt and the plagues, and they've seen the power of God over and over again. So that would have resonated that way to them. They'd be thinking plagues and, and locusts and different things like this, the power of God. The Gentile part of the audience, or the Greeks, they came in many cases from a polytheistic background. So they're thinking Zeus and Apollo, you know, standing on the mountain, hurling down lightning bolts at their enemies, okay? Different hearts entirely. But they would be thinking that in terms of the power of God. But now this part, for salvation to everyone who believes, whoa. Okay, if this was a movie, that'd be where the record went. That kind of stops them in their tracks. 
okay, first of all, everyone who believes. The Jewish part of the room is still struggling with that everyone issue, although they, they're getting it and they've, they've allowed it in, but they're still kind of, you know, dividing the room a little bit. The power of God for salvation. Now, salvation was a sticky part. Sticky part. The Greeks, the Gentiles, they've, they've heard this teaching on it. Although they don't understand the depth of it, they still understand this. The Jewish portion of the room, though, this is, this is a sticky part. Because remember, we've got a, a group of, of Pharisees and those who kind of adhere to that teaching, and then the Sadducees, and they adhere to that teaching. What's one of the primary differences, anybody know, between Pharisees and Sadducees in terms of their teaching, their doctrine? Resurrection of the dead. Resurrection of the dead. The, the Pharisees think that, that resurrection of the dead does happen and salvation does happen, but really only through our adherence to the rules as best as we can. Devote their entire life to following the law as best they can. While on the other hand, the Sadducees don't believe in resurrection of the dead at all. They believe that when you die, you turn to dust and you're done. Game over. That's what they believed. So this part of salvation and resurrection of the dead, the very power of God is that power over life and death, that power of resurrection. The gospel power is in the resurrection. And so if you have a hard time with that part of it, you're going to have a hard time with the rest of your doctrine here. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Now I'm going to do a quick recap of last week. If you remember, I talked about Righteous. This bottom part where it's in caps there, Paul is referring back to Old Testament scripture, specifically Habakkuk 2.4, where Habakkuk basically says the exact same thing. That word righteous there, though. That word righteous, and again, I, I, I'll go into it a little bit. That word righteous in the first Bible, everybody remember Martin Luther? If you were here last week, I apologize. But if you weren't, Martin Luther, father of the Protestant Reformation, that's the scripture that he was camped out on when he had his, his mind-blowing revelation that what the, the Roman Catholic Church was doing was not right. Indulgences and works and things like that. He saw this right here. The righteous man shall live by faith. Righteous in Latin translates differently than it translates in Greek. Righteousness in Latin translates as the word eustificare, and this is the word that Martin Luther would have been reading in his Bible as he went through. That's what the Roman Catholic Church translated it as, and they were reading eustificare. Eustificare is a legal term, meaning if you were taken before the judge and you were found guilty, you had to pay a price, whether that was a fine or jail time or prison, whatever it was. Once you paid that price, you were considered eustificare. Meaning by Roman Catholic doctrine and what many people in Rome especially had grown up learning is that you were made righteous by your works. You had to do enough. You had to buy it. You had to do enough things to achieve your righteousness. But that word actually in Greek does not translate as eustificare. It translates entirely differently in Greek, and it translates as diakosune, 
And the word diakosune, which is what it was originally meant, was mean to be declared as righteous. Meaning you didn't earn it, you didn't buy it, you couldn't possibly do enough to earn your righteousness, but God declares you righteous. It's an entirely different mindset based on the true meaning of what that word was. And so this is where he is. He's teaching them what this means. He's referring back to Habakkuk to say, hey, remember, you guys know this, but let me explain to you the true meaning. Now, the Jewish group would have understood this because that was their history in that culture. But the Greek part would have struggled with this part because they, many of them, would have known the Latin translations or heard it taught in Latin. And they would have been taught you had to be justified by works. Paul is saying, no, this is a free gift. God declares you righteous. And it's through what Jesus did, not through anything you could possibly do. It's free. And he's trying to get that point across. But you can go ahead and take that part of it down. Righteousness, though, righteousness is a free gift. But if you don't accept that righteousness, there are consequences. There are consequences to rejecting that gift. The consequence is being left to your own devices. And Paul goes on to teach about this. We need to understand the context, and I'll explain it to you. First of all, have you ever heard somebody say, how could a loving God X? How could a loving God fill in the blanks? When we see words like wrath, how could a loving God have wrath on his people? That's one of the first ones that I always hear. And it comes from scriptures like this. This is Romans, 18, Romans 1, 18 to 20. Let's put it up there. For the wrath of God. Now, this is New Testament. We always think wrath went away in, old, in New Testament, right? It's all Old Testament stuff is wrath. This is Paul teaching this. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. Next one. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. In other words, you can't pity someone for not knowing because it's been made. But let's go back to the beginning. So the first part of this, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. Okay, who's he talking about there? You might point at one another and say, that person over there is trying to suppress the truth. So God's wrath is on him. That's not what this means. Paul is writing, remember I told you the context of this letter. Okay, they had been, Jews people especially, had been kicked out of Rome repeatedly. They've gone through a succession of emperors from Caligula, okay, and, and now Nero, well known for what? Debauchery and, and fleshly lusts and things like this, right? So he's pointing, he's not pointing to one another there. He's saying the wrath of God is going to be revealed against the rulers. He's pointing at the Roman emperors, why does he have to do that? Well, there's a couple reasons. One is he's saying, look, don't worry about them. God will handle them. 
God will handle them. No matter how much they want to suppress you, no matter how much they want to kick you out of town, no matter how much they, they're tolerating this new Christianity thing, as long as you keep it down. But he's saying, don't worry about them. God's got them. But more than that, he's pointing to them about this growing self-righteousness that they've got. Because they get together in their room and their little enclave there, and they start saying, but at least we're not like them. We may have our little fights and our little differences, but at least we're better than them. How many of us do that? I know I have my faults, but at least I'm not doing that. Notice I'm not pointing at anyone. I'm pointing at the ground right here. <laughs> the problem with judgment, the problem with judgment is it's counterfeit. That righteousness that causes us to judge is not the real thing. The real thing through Jesus, any judgment is his, and it manifests in love from us, or at least it should. And this is where he is. So God's wrath isn't directed against the ignorant, those people who don't know and have never heard. He's saying they know, and God will handle that. But the more you try to handle it, the more it's going to harden your heart. This is exactly what he's trying to teach him, the ungodly, the unrighteous. But listen to this next, next section of Scripture. That was Romans 1, 18 to 20. I'm going to read you. Romans 1, 26, 27. Romans 1, 26, 27 is one of those sections that is very often used by people to point out and to rail against homosexuality. Stay with me. It's very often used to point against that, and I'm going to read it to you in its entirety, so I want you to listen to this. And just as they did not see fit, wait, sorry, jump back Romans 1, 26, 27. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural functions for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also, the men abandoned the natural function of the women and burned in their desire towards one another. Men with men, committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. The next time you hear somebody say that, God hates homosexuals. I want you to remember the context here. Paul is writing that, saying, yes, God gave them over, them. The Roman emperors, the Roman leadership, that culture of debauchery and fleshly sin, he gave them over to it, and his wrath is on them. but just to make sure nobody starts feeling too self-righteous. He goes on. The very next section of Scripture. That was 1, 26 to 27. This is going to be 28 to 32. Listen to this. If anybody starts feeling self-righteous or is having any like, I don't know about that whole thing, listen to this. And just as they did not see to, to fit to acknowledge God any longer, gave, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. Okay? Now here comes the list. Listen to this. These are things that are not proper. Being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, Haters of God, 
insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they give hearty approval to those who do them. Before we start judging, before we plant our flag on this mountain of homosexuality or adultery or whatever it is, whatever one of these mountains we decide we're going to plant our flag on and die on that mountain, think of that list. Do any of us, before we point fingers at anyone else in our own self-righteousness, do any of us struggle with any of those things? Paul here is saying, before, before you start puffing out your chest and thinking you're better than anybody else... Do you struggle with any of these? Church is the very definition of self-righteousness to have a sliding scale of sin and to say, yes, yes, I, I, I have a problem with envy. And every now and then, yeah, I spread a little gossip at work, but at least I don't do that. Church, if you do that, you are practicing the very self-righteousness that Paul is railing against here. Paul is telling us that's not where our heart belongs. True righteousness comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. And is it a gift from him? It is a gift, but it is to be used in love, not towards, towards self-righteous judgment of one another. Worship team, you guys can go ahead and come on up. So, when we choose to judge one another, what we're doing is we're basically discounting the righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus and saying, that's not enough. It's either wrong entirely because that's way too accepting, or it's just not comprehensive enough to cover the things that they couldn't have known was going to go on back then. Next time we get on Facebook and we're reading a post and we feel fit to judge that person. The next time you're driving down the highway and somebody is driving 40 miles an hour in front of you or they're swerving or they cut you off. The next time you run into somebody at the store and you see them yelling at their child or yelling at someone else, and the first thing we want to do is judge because we know better. And certainly, we know as much as God knows. In other words, we know what they're going through. We know their heart. We know what happened at home with them this morning. We know what struggles, what fears, what doubts they have. Certainly we know all those things, and that equips us to judge. Well, church, if you're not in that place, if you can't look at somebody and know everything about their situation, you have no right to judge because we all have our own thing. And anything other than that is a discount of what Jesus did for us. There are consequences from that. This is part of chapter 2. And it's actually the very first verse of chapter 2. But it opens up, the very first word is therefore, which means it's a linking thought to that whole chapter. He's saying, okay, everything I taught you in chapter 1, here's the crystallization of this. And I think I have it on screen here. Romans 2.1. Therefore, you have no excuse. Every one of you who passes judgment... For in that which you judge one another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. I love it when, when chapters start out like that because he's saying all that in chapter one, 
Okay, therefore, here's, here's the crux of it. That's how we can point at chapter one and say it's all about self-righteousness because Paul says that right here. Self-righteousness is destructive. It's destructive to the work of Jesus. It's destructive to our hearts because it keeps us from walking forward in what true righteousness and love is. And I know every one of us struggles to one degree or another with that sort of thing. So what I wanna do as we wrap up is that I wanna pray. I don't want this to be a condemning heavy message. It shouldn't be, but it should be convicting. It should be convicting to those of us who have those little pockets of judgment or self-righteousness or even instances or people that we tend to judge every time we see them. I know for me, there's, there's a handful of people who every time I see them, I think of them through one particular thing that I know or one thing that they did or didn't do. And I need to repent of that. And I think there are some of us who need to repent of some of those attitudes. So before we take communion together, again, communion at the crosses, we have juice and bread and gluten-free crackers there. You can serve yourself if you want. You just dip into the juice. Up front here, we'll have wine and bread and crackers. Same thing, but we'll serve you up here. We can do that with thankful hearts for what Jesus did for us. And it's his self-righteousness that we receive not through anything we could possibly manufacture, but before we take part in that and we're thankful for that, let's leave that baggage behind. Let's pray for repentance of those things that we're carrying that we shouldn't, those places where our heart is not right, and let's leave that behind. Let's leave that kind of judgment to God and walk out of here in the true righteousness that is a gift from Jesus. Amen? So Father God, we just thank you, first of all, for what Jesus did for us. His work on the cross allows us to be righteous in your sight. True righteousness. True righteousness is not through anything we work for or anything we could possibly manufacture, but it is a gift from you, declared over your children. And our job is to receive that in its fullness and not counterfeit it and not, not pollute it with our own thoughts and our own additions, true righteousness is yours and it is 100% done in love. And so Father, we just ask that you come to us now and show us in our hearts where there might be some judgment, some self-righteousness, somebody we need to apologize to, someone we need to simply stop judging. Father, highlight in that in our hearts right now Father, we repent. We repent of the occasional self-righteous attitude that will pop into our hearts. We repent of ever judging your children. And church, remember, correction is not judgment. Correction is always done in love. So Father, we repent before you right now of anything that we have done that is not in love and we accept what Jesus did for us on the cross, and we wanna walk in the fullness of that love, the fullness of our love for one another. Father, we thank you for who you are, and we praise you in Jesus' name, amen. So feel free to start moving around, take communion whenever you're ready, and then enjoy the worship. Thank you, church.
Promise to me that I will rise. 
we want to invite you, if uh, you need some prayer right now, move to the back of the sanctuary where the prayer team is waiting for you. We'd love to pray with you. Uh, whatever it is you've got going on in your life, God's got to lead us through that. Just go back and step out and pray with you.
welcome you to stay and worship with us. Um, the prayer team is in the back if you would like prayer. Please don't, don't hold back. If you're not sure you want to go, please go. Go and let the Lord just work in your heart. Let him do what he does with this pure love. We just thank him again for extravagant love. It's extravagant, no it doesn't make sense, we'll never comprehend the way you love us, it's unthinkable, only heaven knows just how far you go. Comprehend 
Thank you for coming.